All right. Well, I hope everybody had a good July 4th weekend, a good July 4th weekend. Friends, um, we were able to celebrate. We had a good time celebrating. We were able to see fireworks go off, and I went, wow, what a metaphor for this week's sermon. Why? Because we're going to talk about the fireworks of anger. We're going to talk about anger. Does anybody want to instantly get up and leave? Right? Do we all not need some help with being slow to anger? I know I do. In fact, can I share with you a story? Can I tell on myself? Can I share a story of how me, one of your pastors, is not perfect as a sinful man who needs this text as much as you do? Is that okay? Can we do that? Friends, let me take you to eight days ago on a Saturday morning. Eight days ago, I was really excited. I was getting to meet with one of you for breakfast. I was really looking forward to hanging out with this brother in Christ. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. We have some common hobbies, common passions. Wanted to talk about those, see how he's doing, see how his family is doing in the Lord, how I can encourage them in Christ. Had a couple books to give him. But one of the things I was really excited about was this. I got to eat at Cracker Barrel, right? I am from the South. I like pecan, not pecan, pecan. That's how you'll say it in heaven. I like pecan pancakes. I like maple syrup. I like pork sausage with a little bit of spice, a little bit of heat to it. I like playing that stupid tic-tac-toe game with the golf tees and trying to get only one that remains, right? Anybody else? Yes, it's good. I was all set to be there at 8 o'clock, and guess what happened? I drove north on I-65. I hung a left on I-8490. I can never remember that number. And as I go towards the doom clouds of Illinois, where you just get off right before you get to Illinois and there's oh, Cracker Barrel, what happened? I had a choice to make. The next thing I know is I'm on the interstate, I've got three sets of concrete barriers guiding me and telling me where to go. It's not clearly marked, there's not good signs. It's like, what's going on here? Well, I can very quickly, I've lived in big cities before, I very quickly figure out the one on the left, that looks like an HOV lane that's probably taking me on beyond my exit. I look right, I start to kind of, eh, nah, that looks like it's an exit only lane. Stay in the middle, I'm gonna be good. I'm at exit six, I've got till exit three. I can probably get off, I think the concrete barriers will stop. Exit five goes by, no break in the concrete barrier. Exit four, still no break, no end in sight. I'm starting to go, what's going on? And as I watch exit three go by, my internal temperature starts to rise because I feel bamboozled. I'm like, what's going on? Did Governor Pritzker and the Illinois DOT reach its ugly tentacles into my beloved Indiana and they are forcing me to drive to Illinois and they're gonna drop me off at an exit where guess what? I'm gonna have to pay $10 in tolls just to do a U-turn, <laughs> right? Anybody been there, know what I'm talking about? Can I tell on myself? Can I go a little deep? Can I roll down the window of my sternum, share with you my heart in that moment? Here's the conversation I started to have with myself. John, you drive a 6.2 liter V8 with four wheel drive. That concrete barrier, I'm pretty sure I can take it. <laughs> I will be out $500 in deductible, but that thing will be dead. And that actually sounds like a very Hoosier thing to do, right? Like, we're libertarians. Don't tread on me, right? My congregation will be proud of me. Did I do it? No. Was I about to do it? Not really. Not going to happen. Did I want to do it? 15%? <laughs> 
But did I have that conversation with myself? Yes, 100% guilty. I need help with being slow to anger. Anybody want to cop to that? Well, amen. There is good news. There is godly guidance. There is holy help in three Proverbs that we're going to read together today. I'll read them as we go, but here is how. We are going to organize our text. There's only two points, and no, it's not because I'm going on vacation today. There are two points as we look at three Proverbs. Here are the two points of where we're going to be today. Our first point is this. We're going to look at being self-controlled, slow to anger, and we are going to see the value we gain from being slow to anger. The value we gain. The second thing we will see are the viewpoints, the gospel viewpoints we need to become self-controlled or slow to anger. The value we gain, the two viewpoints we need, that's where we're going. Let's hop right in and see the value we gain when we lead self-controlled, slow to anger lives. Go with me, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. It should be up there on your slides. Friends, this is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Proverbs 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Let's unpack this proverb together. Where are we going to begin? Look at that word mighty. Let's start there. Look at the word mighty. Let's start there. Who is this mighty one? Who is this mighty one? Who does Solomon have in mind? Friends, I think it's pretty clear that Solomon has a military hero in mind. How can I say that? Here's the first data point. Look at how mighty is in parallel with he who takes the single man who can take a city all by himself. That's pretty crazy, right? But do you see the link there? That's data point number one. Data point number two is this. Who was Solomon's daddy? King? Very good. King David. King David was one of Israel's fiercest, most beloved, mightiest warriors. That's who his dad was. But that's not all. That's not all. How many of you have heard of King David's special military detachment, his own like Green Beret, Army Ranger, uh, Delta Force up here, Navy SEALs down here. How many of you have heard of King David's special detachment called the 30? The Mighty Ones. The Mighty Ones. They did amazing things on the battlefield. Those were the ones that Solomon saw in his dad's house. May have even trained him. The Mighty Ones. That nickname, Mighty Ones, comes from the same exact Hebrew word that is translating mighty here in Proverbs 16. Friends, I think when we see it through this backdrop, it's very clear that Solomon has a military hero in mind. Can I tell you about a military hero who would fit Solomon's description, an American soldier fighting during the Revolutionary War? Can I tell you his story? First time out, where's Derek Buckley? Derek, we love you, buddy. We're not making fun of the British. London is my second favorite city. We love having you here, brother, all right? Can I tell you about Peter Francisco? Peter Francisco. Who is Peter Francisco? He's an American military hero. In in the day and age, back in the 1700s, the average man was five foot seven and weighed a buck 40. Peter Francisco was like Andre the Giant. He stood at six foot eight and weighed close to 270 pounds. The dude was twice the size of the average man. He was a wrecking ball on the battlefield. You did not seek this guy out in battle. 
Here's one of his great exploits. Here's what he did. He was once surrounded by something like 20 to 30 British soldiers. What did Peter Francisco do? He didn't break a sweat, no problem. He just punches a guy on a horse. The guy falls off. He jumps on the horse, rides through the line of like 20 soldiers. And then what happens next? He comes across his commanding officer, sees that he's dying, gets off the horse, throws his officer on, gives the horse a good game, sends him on his way to the hospital. Peter says, you know what? I didn't even break a sweat. I'm going to go back. Bust through the line again of British redcoats. And what does he do? He saves like, a, a, like an artillery cannon piece. How does he save it? He picks up an 1,100-pound cannon, puts it on his shoulders, and walks it to safety. That's a hoss, right? Like that is a dude, right? Like do not mess with him. When General George Washington learned about this man, what did he do? In a day and age where muskets, rifles, and cannonballs ruled the battlefield, what did George Washington do? Did he invest in technology? No, he went out and he had a specially commissioned sword made for Peter Francisco, a five-foot broadsword. How are we gonna run the Revolutionary War? This guy, with a sword, fighting cannons. Kind of odd, right? That's how amazing this man was in battle. Here's the single greatest deed Peter Francisco did, and this is how it fits our proverb. One day, the American soldiers realized, we need to take this fort. It was up in New York. We've gotta take this fort. What was the battle plan? You guys to the left, you guys to the right, Peter up the middle. What did the guy do? He runs to the walls, hops up onto the parapet, clears the parapet with his broadsword, hops down, gets shot, gets stabbed, receives a nine-inch sword slash to his stomach. No problem. What does he do for there? He kills 12 guys, races to the British flagpole, drops the flag, throws it on the ground, runs the American flag up and says, boys, come on in, we're good. Is that a man who could take a city? That's pretty amazing, right? This guy fits Solomon's Proverbs to a T. Why am I telling you this story? Why are we spending so much time here? You need to see, as we go back to the text, you need to see that Solomon is saying, when you become slow to anger, you are better than Peter Francisco. Is that not mind-bending? Is that not crazy? Don't you have a little trouble believing that? I'm better than that? What does that even mean? How could I possibly be better than that guy? Let's break down that word better. That word better translates the Hebrew word tov, tov. It's translated usually good, good, but it's a ball of meanings. It usually has multiple layers to what it means that something is good or better. It's like a diamond with a lot of facets, and as you turn it around in the sun, as the sun hits it, every little facet sparkles. What are the different facets? What are the different layers to tov and better than? Let's look at them. Let's look at them. What's the first layer that we need to unpack? We need to unpack this. Better here means useful. It means useful. It means that the person who is slow to anger is more useful than a military hero. You are more useful to your family. You are more useful to your church. You are more useful to your place of employment. You are more useful to society than a conquering hero is when you are slow to anger. How so? 
That sounds like a pretty bold statement. How so? Think about it this way. The hero brings peace in short spurts by winning battles that last one or two days. The person who is slow to anger becomes a bedrock who brings peace in the people around him, in his community, and in society at large over the course of his or her lifetime. You are more useful. That is one way you are better than Peter Francisco. What's the second layer? What's the second layer? If the first is useful, the second layer is this. You are actually stronger. You are stronger. What do we mean by stronger? Let's break that down. You see, if a military hero wins battles that last like a couple days, maybe a siege that lasts a couple of months up to a year, that's fine. That's great. That's good. But when you are slow to anger, you win day after day, battle after battle. You win a war against your temper and a war that lasts your entire life. That really does require a greater strength than anything I ever saw on the battlefields of Iraq. You're more useful, you're stronger. What's another way that you're better? What's the third way that you're better? You are better in this way. You are a better representative of who our God is. You're a better representative of who our God is. Did you know that in the Bible, no less than 10 times, our God is called slow to anger? That is fundamental to his character. That is fundamental to who he is. When he is called patient, when he's called long-suffering, that's the same concept, the same idea. Your God is slow to anger. He is slow to anger. And friends, when you think about it, when you represent him better, you are more useful to him. Why? Because you're a better ambassador of who our God is. You are more useful. You are stronger. You are a better representative. What's the fourth layer? What's the fourth way we need to understand that you are better than Peter Francisco? It's this. The word tov, the word better there, can also mean worth. It can mean value. When you are more useful to the other people in your life, when you labor by your example and by your words to diffuse situations so they don't go to war, when you work from a greater strength fighting a greater war, when you are more useful to God as his rightful and accurate ambassador, do you see how you are going to be more valuable, more esteemed, and have higher worth to our God than Peter Francisco? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Don't you want that? I mean, I get it. There's the gospel, right? Like Jesus loves me and he cannot love me anymore. Why? Because I have his perfect life. I have his death. But here's the thing, you can be of greater use to God, of greater value because of your ability to work for and labor for his kingdom. Don't we want to live a life like that? Especially in our day and age of outrage culture. How many of you have heard our society described as an outrage culture? Anybody? Yeah, we're tweets everywhere you turn. Fox News is mad at MSNBC. CNN is mad at Fox. One of my friends is mad at another. That friend's mad at another one. Every turns around. Everywhere we turn around, somebody's upset, somebody's offended. We live in an outrage culture. When we are slow to anger, do you see how we live with a countercultural witness that proclaims there is something greater 
than your outrage. We talk about getting the gospel outside of the four walls of the church when you are slow to anger and you put who our God is and what he's done for us in Jesus on display. Oh, friend, oh, friend, what a high value you have. Does that sound good? Well, let's describe this way of life. Let's describe what it means. What does it mean to be slow to anger? What does it mean? Let's round out the verse. What does it mean to rule our spirits? There's a really popular British pastor. Derek, see, here we go. I'm coming back, buddy. A really popular British pastor who lived a couple hundred years ago named Matthew Henry. He had a wonderful description of what it means to be slow to anger, to rule your spirit. He said it's things like this. You don't give into your emotions. You're not easily provoked. You take time to think through a situation, to hear others out, to get both sides of the story before releasing your passions in the form of thoughts, words, or action. He says when your emotions do come to the surface, you don't let them go beyond certain boundaries. You don't seek retaliation to avenge a wrong. And when you do start to move towards anger, someone else can come in and quickly pacify you, can soothe that wrath with light, with understanding, with truth. In ruling your spirit, that means you rule over your appetites. It means you understand your triggers. You understand your tendencies and your inclinations. You're aware of them and you watch out for them. You rule over them. It means you are not driven by your desires, but you let God's desires according to God's heart, as found in God's word, rule and drive your life. Oh, friends, that is what it looks like in this world. Oh, we've got to be Christians who live this way and are salt and light. We do it for the individual benefit of peace in our homes, peace at work, peace in the church, but we do it for a culture that needs Jesus. When we see this high value, when we want to run after it, I think we're left with one question, how? <laughs> how do I become more slow to anger? How do I do this? Help me. What are some practical tips? Let's go to our second point. We need gospel viewpoints to become slow to anger. As we embark upon this point, can I just say, can I just say there is a host of good advice on how to be more patient how to be more self-controlled. There's lots of strategies and tricks, but friends, today I want to get at the heart. I want to hone in on two areas. I want to go deep with those two areas that really help us to go deep into the heart of anger and in the heart of patience. And I think when we see these, grasp these, we will naturally become more slow to anger. So point to the viewpoints we need. Let's go to another proverb. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 14 verse 29. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Let's start in the second half of that verse. What does it mean to exalt folly? Here's what it means. Whether internally, I get keyed up quickly and I start judging people in my mind, I go black and white, I don't think of other possibilities, I just go, that's it, I'm hopping on that train, I'm getting upset, even if you don't show it externally, if you do that internal game, or whether or not you actually release it, you blow your top and you're like a volcano. Whenever we do that, either one of those things, internally or externally, here's what we're doing. This verse says, we hold up a banner for team folly. 
We do not wave the flag of Team Jesus. We do not wave the flag of Team Bible, Team Gospel. We take off our Jesus jersey and we put on a jersey that puts us on the team of Satan, sin, and death. That's what it means to exalt folly. None of us want that, so what do we do? What do we do? We go to the first half of the verse. We go to the first half of the verse where it says what? We need great understanding to become slow to anger. We need great understanding. We need to engage our minds. We need to see perspectives more broadly. We need perspective. We need gospel viewpoints. Do you see how I got that? We need a gospel viewpoint, and here's the first one. We've got two. Here's the first viewpoint. We need to see God's design for anger. We've got to ask the question, what is anger? But we've got to ask a better question. What is anger according to our God as found in the Bible? The single best definition of anger I have ever found, biblical definition of anger that I have ever found, comes from a man named Dr. David Pallison. When he was alive, he was the director of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Some of you have heard of CCEF. They put out amazing materials. Here is the definition of anger that he gives. He says, anger always expresses two things. It identifies something in your world that matters to you. So number one, anger identifies something in your world that matters to you. And number two, it proclaims that you believe that something is wrong. Anger is our God-given. Did you hear that? Anger is a gift from God. It is a God-given capacity to respond to a wrong that we think is important. God himself also gets angry at things that are wrong in this world. Your capacity to be angry is an expression of being made in his image. What did Dr. Pallison just say? He just said this. When viewed and used rightly, anger is good, it's healthy. It is a good and healthy thing to be angry at the things that God gets angry at. It is a good and healthy thing to care about the things that God cares about, right? Like, that's common sense. When we look at it this way, we actually see that our anger is a diagnostic tool. It is an early warning system, right? This is God's path. It says this, am I on God's path? Am I off of God's path? Am I aligned? Am I in harmony? When we are angry about the things that God gets angry about, that actually shows that you are united and unified to your Lord God, and that can be a good thing. In fact, think of it this way. Go with me to the Garden of Eden. What if Adam had not gone timid, right? As the serpent is tempting his wife. What man does not get upset when he sees someone messing with his wife? What if Adam had gotten a godly sense of anger and stomped the snake's head, slung him against a tree, thrown him out of the garden? What would our lives on planet Earth right now look like? Right? Do you see how anger can be a very good thing? But here's the thing. When you have this perspective, when we are grounded in God's design for anger, that right there helps you to become slow to anger. It protects you from abusing anger. How does it help you become slow to anger? Here's how it helps you. When you understand anger this way, when you understand anger from the Bible standpoint, from God's standpoint, when you understand the way he designed it, you don't want to step outside of his design. You don't want to go against what he wants. 
You don't want to step out of, outside of his design for anger when that makes you careful when you feel your internal thermometer rising. Right? Do you see how that works? Like, uh-oh, am I angry about something God would get angry about? Or would God not get angry about this? As you have that conversation with yourself, you're already slowing down. You're already becoming more self-controlled. Friends, you will want to glorify God in your anger. You will never want to abuse this gift that he's given you. That's our first vantage point. That helps us become slow to anger. What's the second vantage point? What's the second gospel viewpoint that we need? Go with me to Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. It says there, good sense. Just stop. Good sense. Do you see great understanding in the last proverb? Good sense in this proverb? Same thing. Good sense does what? It makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory. It is her glory to overlook an offense. What did Solomon just say? What he said is this. He says we need good sense. We need understanding. And when we do that, it makes us slow to anger, and then it becomes our glory to overlook an offense. It becomes our glory when we lift up the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus. When we approach anger the way Christ approached the cross, you take on a different quality. You become a winsome, attractive human being who radiates Jesus. That's what he just said. So how do we get that good sense? Well, we need our second perspective, our second gospel viewpoint. What is that second gospel viewpoint? If the first was to ask, what is anger according to the Bible? Let's look at the process, the dynamics by which we become angry. A New Testament scholar, a man named Dr. Bruce Lowe, has given a wonderful insight into the process of how our engine starts to rev how it starts to redline and the RPM start to go high. He gives us something called the three Ps. How many? And what letter of the alphabet? Now you can go teach somebody, right? Three Ps. What's the first P? You perceive a motive. The second P is position. You perceive a position. You perceive a motive. You perceive a position. What's the third P? You start to take pleasure in another person's pain. Let's give an example and let's see how this plays out, and let's see how this can help us be slow to anger. Let me give you just a really shocking example, a hypothetical. Let's say I shove you. Let's say I push you. If I push you at the grocery store checkout line to get in front of you, will you get angry? Duh. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, I will get angry. But if I push you, to knock you out of the way of an oncoming semi-truck, will you get angry? No, you'll be grateful. My motive and how you perceive my motive in pushing you determines whether or not you will get angry. Common sense, right? Now let's look at position. Same example, let's look at position. That's perceiving a motive, let's look at position. If I push you to get out of my way in the grocery store checkout line, you will get angry, but part of the reason you will get angry is because of the position. I just said by my actions, I am here, you are here. My desires, my priorities, my agenda, my interests are up here, yours are down here. When you perceive that somebody has put themselves in a higher position than you, you will get angry. But when I push you to get you out of the way of a semi-truck, and I even potentially take on that hit myself, 
What have I done with respect to position? I've said, I am here. You are here. And so you don't get angry. Do you see how perceived motive and position work together and are part of the dynamics of our anger? When you see that, the third P automatically makes sense. If I say you are here and I'm going to shove you because I'm up here and you're angry, do you see how you will start to take joy? You will start to take pleasure in my being lowered, in my getting a comeuppance, and you will start to scheme and plot to see my downfall, to see my humbling. You will take pleasure in that. And when you start to do that, you are at high risk. I am at high risk for having a temper, for being quick to anger. Glorified common sense, three Ps, super helpful. Now let's go back and let's spiritualize those three Ps. Let's start with a perceived motive. Somebody shoves you out of the way. Somebody shoves you out of the way. What if we could go find out their actual motive? What if we could stop and say, wait a minute, I don't know their motive. That person might be on the way to the hospital to take food to somebody who's taking care of a dying relative. That person might be getting food to a pregnant lady, right? Like we don't know the motive. Can we just own the fact that we cannot live in black and whites when it comes to judging the human heart? When we stop and we slow down and we go, wait a minute, I'm perceiving a motive, hold on. Do you see how that will slow you down and you can handle that injustice with tact, with grace, with firmness? Like, I'm not calling you to be a coward. I'm not calling you to stuff it. But you will handle your anger in a much different way. Why? Because when you back up from a perceived motive, you are now being slower to anger. What about this? What about position? Let's spiritualize position. When you remember, when you remember that your Savior took delight in seeing that you were here, he was here in heaven. He took delight in lowering himself, coming to earth, taking on the limitations of humanity. And then he went one step lower and lowered himself into the grave allowing himself to be unjustly killed. Why? So that as he rose, he could raise you and put you on heaven's foothold. Do you see how it's not that big of a deal or it takes the sting out of other people lowering you? When you look at position relative to Christ in his position in the incarnation in his crucifixion and then that leading to his exaltation that brings your exaltation, do you see how that helps you to slow down? When you bring Jesus Christ into your anger, something different starts to happen. When you think about Jesus and you invite him into your anger, you start to think about that other person's eternal destiny you start to think about, are they heaven-bound? Are they hell-bound, right? You start to think of their alignment with God's will. And when you see that somebody who's not a Christian is not aligned with Jesus, when you see a Christian who's off the well path and on a beaten path and is off of God's ways, that right there makes you sad. That makes you more sad than angry. And when you do that, when you have that dynamic, manifested in your life, you are now living out Jesus's words as he was being crucified. Father God, forgive them. They know not 
what they do. When you have that perspective, you will become much slower to anger. Let's look at the third P, pleasure. Let's spiritualize that one. Does anyone in this room really want a cop to taking joy in another person's pain? No. No one wants to be that. That's silly, right? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we stop, when we reflect on where that other person is at, where that person is at before the Lord, and when we do that in the midst of our pain, friends, that slows you down as well. Do you see how when you're angry, the warning signs, the engine revving, the wife, the husband, the kids saying, you're looking mad. If you stop and say, wait a minute, am I perceiving emotion? Let me think through position and let me think through if I really want to take pleasure in another person's pain. That perspective, that gospel perspective helps you to slow down. You become, you become much slower to anger. Now that may sound good and it's helpful right? Like when we understand anger through God's eyes, when we understand the process by which we get angry, when we slow those things down, we become slower to anger. But there is a final and third gospel viewpoint we need, and it is this. It is this. We'll close here. We said earlier that our God is slow to anger. Let's slow down and let's see this principle play out on the pages of Scripture. Go with me to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, did God zap them? No. No, he zapped two animals and clothed them in their nakedness as a symbol that he would one day clothe their sin with Jesus' righteousness, and he sent them out to go out and to have children. That is a God who is slow to anger. As Adam and Eve had children, and the children universally went away from God, as we arrive at Genesis 6, we finally, finally, finally see God act. He had been slow to anger. He did not zap humanity, even though the majority, the overwhelming majority, the supermajority was in open rebellion against him and ignoring him. It was not until there was one man left named Noah, one man alone, who sought God's righteousness, that our God finally said, enough. This is out of hand. And he sent the flood. That is a God who is slow to anger. Fast forward to the Exodus, when God's people are imprisoned in slavery in Egypt. Did God just give Pharaoh one plague and then zap him and zap Egypt? He gave the man 10 plagues, 10 opportunities to turn around. He gave him several other warnings as well. Right? Like, he did not set out to drown Pharaoh necessarily at the Red Sea. Right? He gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. But he hardened his heart, and then God acted. Then God removed Pharaoh. That is a God who is slow to anger. Friends, we can fast forward through so much of the Old Testament where we see time and again. Let's go to the wilderness. Right? Let's go to the wilderness. Israel's just been freed, right? They've seen the miracles of the plagues. They've seen the miracles of the Red Sea. They've seen the manna from heaven. They've seen the quail go back and forth. They've seen water from a rock. And what do they do? They grumble against the Lord repeatedly. What do they do? They take God's gold that he plundered from Egypt. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. They make an Egyptian God. And then what do they do? They bow down to it. They provoked the Lord to anger. Did he zap them and just wipe them all off the face of the earth? 
No, he relented. Why? Because of the pleading, the mediating work of one man, Moses. That is a God who is slow to anger. Fast forward, fast forward. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, beginning with Elijah, working all the way forward through to keep calling his people once they were in the promised land to come back to him. If you look at the time of God sending Elijah and beginning this intense pattern of sending prophets to Israel all the way forward to the time where they were sent into exile, that is 300 years of warnings of turn back to me before he finally said enough and sent them into exile. Is that a God who's slow to anger? Where do we see this quality of God the most? We see it at the cross. We see at the cross that our God really is the Lord in the book of Exodus, who is merciful, who is gracious, who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, and forgiving sin. We see this at the cross where God went further than being slow to anger. He went further than that by putting an end to his anger and his wrath by, Jesus, by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me. For all those times where our tempers have flared, even in our, just our thought life, we have tempers that go off. Our speech when our tempers go off. But our hands, when the temper affects them, we have not borne the image of a God who is slow to anger. Can we just own that? But here's the thing. In his mercy and his love and his grace, from his heart that is slow to anger, God himself came to this earth to live in our place, to walk in our shoes. Think about what it was like to be the son of God, Jesus Christ, walking this earth every day, seeing open rebellion against God's law. Think about what it was like for him to see the effects of the fall as he found the demonically oppressed, as he found the lame, the deaf, the mute, even little children dying, all of that a result of Adam's first sin. Wouldn't that be enough to anger him every day? He's on planet Earth, and yet what does he do? He perfectly images the God who is slow to anger. Jesus Christ got it right where you and I got it wrong. He was slow to anger. But he didn't just come to live a life of being slow to anger. No, he went to the cross to put an end to God's anger and God's wrath at our sin. And now by faith in Jesus, God looks at you and me and sees Jesus' perfect life of living with self-control. He no longer sees you in your temper. No, he sees Jesus' perfect self-control. Your temper and all that it has wrought is as far from you as the east is from the west when you have faith in Christ. Would you come to him today if you do not know Jesus? Moreover, moreover, this is a wonderful God. This is a wonderful Savior. How can we say thank you to him? By doing these two things going out and pursuing that life of high value where you become slow to anger. By going out this week, remembering those two vantage points, I need to remember anger through a biblical lens and I need to remember the process of, of becoming angry and how I become angry. And I need to slow that down through the three Ps. That's how you image a God who is slow to anger. That's how you grow in self-control. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father God, you are the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
You give us what we do not deserve. In Jesus Christ, we do not get the punishment that we do deserve, and we get the reward, the gift of eternal life that we have not earned. Oh, Father, let our hearts be humbled. Father, let us think upon and be convicted by our tempers, by our our lack of self-control, by our lack of being slow to anger. But, Father, let us hold and cling to gospel truth. Let it wash over us. Let it pacify us that we may go out and live for you, being your ambassadors. We need your help, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen.